Podcast. The Gospel according to Matthew was written by a former tax collector who was transformed by the power of Christ. Instead of keeping records for Rome, now he would keep records for God, carefully recording all that Jesus said and did. Matthew references more than 60 Old Testament prophecies, proving Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. Jesus really is who he claimed to be, our Savior and soon returning King. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. Right. Good morning, everybody. We are headed back to Matthew chapter 9, picking up where we left off. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, it feels so good to get back into the scriptures, back into our verse-by-verse study of Matthew. Father, today's passage about Matthew coming to faith in Christ, it's just so rich and full of things that we need to know about the gospel, about our Christian life. We ask your blessing now in Christ's name. Amen. Our kids grew up watching uh, the Chronicles of Narnia and, uh, of course, famous as they are, C.S. Lewis, awesome stories, wonderful metaphors about the gospel and the Christian life. Uh, It comes complete with uh, King Aslan as a lion. He represents Christ, of course. Uh, The White Witch does an excellent job uh, being the devil and the infamous wardrobe, of course, the door into Narnia, uh, which represents the kingdom of God. And there's only one way to get into Narnia or the kingdom, and that's through one door or a portal. The king has to be on the other side, uh, calling and wooing and assisting and helping them to enter his kingdom. And so I love the sequel, The Voyager of the Dawn Treader. And the the scene before they go into Narnia, the kids are staring at this painting and uh, they start to feel like the painting is moving and the ocean is going back and forth. And they're they're saying, I smell the air and you can hear the, the... the seagulls, and uh, before you know it, in a twinkling of an eye, they are swept into the painting itself, and they find themselves in the land of uh, Narnia, the kingdom, a whole new world. They were called by the king, they responded in faith, and in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, suddenly everything's different. Well, you remember, don't you? When God called you out of this world and into his kingdom, not called Narnia, of course, but the kingdom of heaven. I remember June of 1979 for me when I walked out of the door of a nightclub, 19 years old, and through the door into the kingdom of God, answering the voice I heard that was asking me a question. Why will you go to hell when you don't have to? I've told the story many times, but uh, that life life has never been the same uh, after walking through that door. And nor is it the same for anybody who hears the voice and the call of Christ, responds in faith and follows him into his eternal kingdom. Life is never the same. And so Paul explains becoming Uh, a Christian to the Colossians in this way, he says, for he has rescued us out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. The way that that happens is the voice of the Lord comes calling and says, follow me. And we respond in faith. And when we do that, the Bible says that anybody who's in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. So being a Christian is so much more than the world will ever understand. It's about being raised to new life on the inside. Now, speaking of new life, how about Matthew? 
man. He is the divinely inspired writer, of course, of this very gospel. He was formerly a hated tax collector. Uh, Some might have called him before his conversion a self-absorbed, greedy pig. Uh, They probably would even say that to his face because he was so reprehensible. But then he had an encounter with Jesus. Jesus was passing by. And he confronts him, he calls him, no uncertain terms, he says, you follow me. And Matthew heard the call, responded in faith, and got up and left everything and began to follow the Lord. He stepped through a door into a whole new world. His life was changed. And the encounter, he writes for us today, he sums up his own story in a brief paragraph But how it happens, how Matthew responds, what happens the next day or the evening at the dinner party, the celebration with the Pharisees there, it really captures the heart of the gospel and what it means to know Jesus and serve him. And this is huge. Don't miss it. If you're an unbeliever and you miss this, you may miss heaven altogether. The truth that's revealed in this brief paragraph, really, for believers, if you miss it, really, you kind of miss out on what the whole point of being a Christian is. So let's take a look at Matthew encountering the Son of God, the Son of God calling Matthew to eternal life. Let's look at the screens together. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 14. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew, his other name is Levi, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and so-called sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why in the world does your teacher eat with nasty tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6, he's quoting, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, people who think they're righteous, but sinners. So there you have it, our text before us for consideration this morning. And that's worth taking a few extra minutes to get the feel of the backstory that's going on here. So the, the honeymoon phase, uh, if there ever was one, is now over. The religious leaders from Matthew chapter 9 forward uh, are opposed and offended and tripped up uh, with Jesus. And really what's happening is they're hearing all of his claims and they're getting offended. Jesus claimed to be the light of the world and offered whoever would follow him would never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He said he was the bread of heaven that came down from heaven to give his life away. He made himself equal to God in every way and said, when you see me, you've seen the father, God. And so Jesus himself said, let the miracles be evidence that my claims are true. But that wasn't enough for them. And so they were stumbled and they began plotting to destroy Jesus. From about this point on, it'll culminate at the cross. Now, interestingly, the Pharisees hear the same call that Matthew hears, but they don't respond in faith. And really this passage, especially uh, when we hear uh, what troubles them, it shows us why they won't come to Jesus. They have this huge misunderstanding about the real problem in the world of sin and how it affects even them. And so they don't understand that sin leads to death and death leads to judgment and judgment leads to uh, eternal separation from God. They don't get that. They think they're basically good people. They're religious folks. And they think that to solve the sin uh, issue or sin problem is is that they just are in denial and go about doing good things and, and hope that that's enough. But Pharisees, The word Pharisee means separated one. 
And so they were separated to do God's will full time. And so they thought that that was enough to save them. So they, they misunderstand the world's greatest problem, like many do today. Some people think that the biggest problem is poverty. Well, poverty is not the biggest problem because the bankruptcy of our souls before God, that's a greater problem. Some think that hunger is uh, one of the worst problems, and it is a very serious problem. But the lack of hunger for God's word, Jesus said, man can't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of God's mouth. And so the lack of hunger for that which gives us true life that's a greater problem, and some may think the big issue is war. And as serious as war is, to war against God and the gospel, uh, those are more serious issues for sure. Or some may think the big scare is the spread of a virus. Well, yes, it's a big deal. The mortality rate, though, is about 2%. The real pandemic, from God's point of view, would be something called sin, because the mortality rate is 100%. And so they have a twisted, superficial view of themselves, of religion, of God, because they don't understand the nature of the true problem of sin and our need to be reconciled to God. So, uh, you know, if somebody would say, you know, hey, Jesus saves, they're the kinds of people who would say, saved from what? In fact, in John chapter 9, uh, chapter 8, he says, uh, they say, we don't need to be saved from sin. We're descendants of Abraham. And so we're set. And so while self-righteous people exclude themselves from salvation, uh, those who are aware of their own sinfulness and come to Jesus and find new life. And so Jesus is going to say later on, how sad, pathetic, and ironic. He tells these religious guys, he says, the prostitutes, the sexually immoral, the tax collectors, uh, the losers in this life from their point of view are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. And that's true because... It had nothing to do, it has nothing to do with being good or bad. It has everything to do with coming to Christ who died on our behalf. He is the one who makes us um, worthy. It's all because of him. And so really you need to hear the call and respond in faith. And, and even people who don't have working ears, who are deaf, can still hear because God speaks to deaf people in their hearts. And, and they respond, they will be in the kingdom of God more so than some people who have two good working ears. That's why Jesus says, you got two ears, use them and hear the voice of the Lord and respond. And so happy to report that Matthew, sinful as he was, he has two uh, good ears and he's hearing. So let's focus in on the encounter here in uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, there before you, I'll paraphrase. As Jesus went on from there, having, well, where's there? It's, it's if you remember the last time we were here, it's where Jesus raised up the man uh, who was paralyzed, who had been lowered through the roof. And so after that incident, uh, he went on from there. He sees Matthew in the toll booth. He imagines, uh, or we imagine, uh, tossing in some coins and, and, uh, and saying to uh, Matthew, follow me. And Matthew gets up and Luke says he left everything and followed. And so uh, Barclay, a famous commentator, said, yes, he left everything except his pen. He keeps his pen because he's good at keeping records and God is going to use him to record the record of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. And so uh, note takers, we're going to take a look at Matthew's encounter, and which leads to the Pharisees' offense, which leads to Jesus' answer. And so Matthew's power encounter, a close encounter of the 
God kind, the divine kind. And so now why did Matthew leave out the part that Luke included when Luke says he left everything, his whole way of life, every little thing, he sacrificed it all to know Christ? Why didn't Matthew tell you? Well, of course, Matthew has a sense of humility can you imagine Matthew saying, and by the way, when Jesus called me, as rich as I and famous as I was, you know, I left it all. Total value, $250,000 a year I was making. I had three houses, one on the lake, one in Jerusalem, one at Rome. But you know, Jesus came calling and I left it all for him. Well, no, we're not going to hear that from him. Proverbs says in, in chapter 27, let someone else praise you, not your own lips. And so someone else in this case is Luke chapter 5 and verse 28, where we're filled in that he left it all. He was very rich and lived a life of luxury and he left it all. But he didn't do it grudgingly. He followed Jesus happily. I mean, look at the celebration afterwards. He was happy. He was probably thinking, what good was any of this? Uh, on my way to hell with a guilty conscience, no friends, a life without love. It wasn't worth it. And so, yeah, he considered all of that stuff uh, as loss and to know Christ. And so the call goes forth. Jesus comes to him calls him, and it seems that everyone gets a call, that the Holy Spirit knocks at the door of every human heart. I think that's what Jesus meant when he says, many are called, but few are chosen. That's in Matthew 22. His voice, like creation, goes out to all the earth, but much of the earth is not interested in repenting of sins or bowing the knee to a Lord. But happily, his kindness does lead those who believe to repentance. And God's kindness was all over that toll booth that day. And so Matthew's reputation precedes him, does it not, as a tax collector. Uh, most of you know they were notorious sinners. If anyone truly had ever sold their soul to the devil, it was this guy for sure. Uh, uh, you know, everybody, uh, nobody really likes paying taxes, right? And, um, uh, and so back in that day when people were so corrupt, it was even worse. Um, but uh, I was baptizing oh, a few years ago and Right before I baptized one fella, uh, I asked him what he did in front of everybody. And he said, I'm a tax collector. And I said, man, I'm going to have to hold you under just a little longer as a result of that confession. Now, tax collectors, they were social pariahs, real outcasts. Rome was occupying Israel, right, as a world power. And uh, Rome made sure that they got their share of the pie. And so they levied the taxes on goods that crossed over from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other. And it was a road that Jesus, Jesus often traveled with the disciples. And well, here's how it worked. It was an incredibly lucrative position. So Rome needed guys, Jewish guys, who would sell out and willingly extort their own fellow uh, Jews. And so the position was given to the highest bidder. And so the tax collector promised Rome a certain amount of money. And uh, they paid Rome that money, but they get to keep the uh, rest of it. And so there was a big incentive to rip people off, a big incentive to overcharge I mean, it was worse than buying a hot dog and Coke in Disneyland. I mean, you would feel worse than wanting popcorn and milk duds at the movie theater where you just feel, what? Did I just spend $75 at the theater? Oh, my word. They got you. They know it. Fork it over and say, please and thank you on your way out. Well, Matthew was all that and more on steroids. And so Jewish society had an apt response. They excommunicated, excommunicated every tax collector. Uh, that was a 
social death sentence. You were shunned. You couldn't operate. Your only friends were other people who had been excommunicated. The synagogue was the hub of life. And so, man, that was a big deal. And so that's why all the, the uh, tax collectors and sinners hung out together. They had nobody else. Uh, they were ineligible to serve in the local government. They couldn't testify in court. Uh, the disgrace of the tax collector was attributed also to their family, as sadly how it still goes. And so really, a wretched soul, a wretched heart, a wretched job, a wretched life, just filled with greed and apathy, just rejected, ostracized. Can you imagine? Hated and mocked by everyone except the Son of God and those who are like Jesus, right? And so, you know, scholars plead for common sense when you see them meet and Jesus just fires off, hey, you, follow me. And he gets up and leaves all, you know, you hear the violins playing and, and a gay, you know, a dazed look come over Matthew's face. And that's how we think of it. But uh, really, scholars say, come on. Uh, they both lived in Capernaum. It's a common road. Jesus passed that way a lot. And Jesus is famous. He's heard his teachings Perhaps he's seen some of the miracles. 80% of them were done in that town. And so Matthew knows quite a bit. I mean, you wouldn't leave everything unless you knew what you were getting yourself into, right? And so, and he has a brother who's a disciple. James the lesser, the younger, uh, is his brother. And so he's got a brother who's a disciple who's sharing the gospel. He knows a lot. And when Jesus understands that his knowledge of the gospel is adequate, not perfect, but adequate, uh, he fires the question, or really the command. It's in command form, which I love. You know, he says, I command you to follow me and have life. I command you not to destroy yourself. I command you. There's a lot of commands in the Bible that are for our own good. I command you to rejoice, to have joy, to be happy. I command you not to worry. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, what a wonderful God who makes our delight a duty. So Jesus commands him, follow me. It's time. He, he understands the basics <laughs> God, good, devil, bad, sin, hell, belief, heaven. He's got it. He understands that he is claiming to be God in a human body. He wants in. And so with a smile and a loving tone, he says, follow me. And uh, Matthew combines his words with faith. And he responds with this sweet explosion. His heart is busted wide open. And so here's what goes on. Uh, we continue now with uh, verses 10 and 11. I'll paraphrase. While Jesus is hanging out at Matthew's place, because then Luke tells us this, that Matthew is hosting a huge banquet, a party in Jesus' honor. Uh, many fellow tax collectors and sinners, the town's losers, really, the party crowd, social rejects, all join in and they eat with the Lord and his disciples and they're having a good time. Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with disgusting people like tax collectors and dirty, rotten sinners? That's exactly what they were intimating there. Unless, of course, he is exactly like them. That's what they were accusing. So the power encounter, Matthew's encounter, leads now to the offense of the Pharisees. Now, the cause of great joy in Matthew's heart and a lot of other people's leads to the cause for great offense and indignation in the hearts of the Pharisees. And let me start by saying that this is a terrible, pathetic irony, is it not? I mean, really think of it. God is cheering and the guys in religious robes are booing for a guy who leaves a life of sin and comes in repentance to know the Savior. That's incredible. The greatest joy of heaven is cause for revulsion 
by those who represent God. Now, the Pharisees, I already told you, separated to do God's will. They were like the pastors and seminary teachers of the day, only fake. I mean, like kind of the, the religious experts that PBS puts on at Christmas and Easter, and they don't have a, a, a believing bone in their body. They don't know the Lord. They're experts, uh, but they, they haven't experienced him at all. They're kind of like that. They're called teachers of the law, the law meaning the Bible. Uh, here's what one uh, commentator uh, said about them. They preached a God they neither knew nor loved. They were experts in matters in which they had no personal experience. You know the kinds. You know I was sick for a while 20 years ago at UCSF. I was in a bed and some guy came in with a little badge that said clergy and he said, I'm here uh, to help you spiritually. But the guy <laughs> didn't know the Lord. He wasn't born again. And so it's these kinds of people uh, that the Pharisees were like. And so it's really no wonder instead of rejoicing with God. And you know, Luke chapter 15, verse 10 says, when one sinner like Matthew repents, that there is a celebration of angels in heaven. The angels are celebrating and God's so-called religious leaders are scowling. While the angels are singing and the Lord is celebrating, uh, these religious sourpusses are really uh, not very happy at all. In fact, they're indignant. And so there's a party going on, and it's in the Fountain Grove uh, section uh, because he had a lot of money, and he lived at the top of the hill in the biggest house. And he's throwing the biggest party. It's a big deal. He's happy. So I want you to imagine the, the, the servants running around, filling everybody's cup to overflowing, and nobody's hungry there. Lots of good food, skilled musicians, maybe a little choir, people singing, joyful dancing, laughter all echoing throughout the neighborhood. But not everybody's happy. Not everybody's happy at all. And so one commentator said this, where there is a conversion to Christ without any joy, true salvation is suspect. So here we got religious guys who represent God, who's rolling their eyes and scowling when a sinner comes to know the Lord. Well, there's got to be joy. I mean, of course there's joy. A soul set free from sin to know the love of God, to have purpose in your life again, uh, your heart warmed by the love of God, the promise of eternal life, all those burdens lifted. Of course, there's reason for joy. You remember Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was even richer than uh, Matthew because he was chief tax collector. He was in charge of all the Matthews. All right, so Zacchaeus was a wee little man. He was a short dude, right? And so he was up in the sycamore tree and Jesus said, hey, Jesus invited himself over to this tax collector's house and he got saved and his heart was overflowing with joy and he stands up and he says, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. Of course, his heart's been set free. He's got a clean conscience. He's been restored to life. It's the love of God. And of course, he's going to say, if I've wronged somebody, I'll pay you four times as much. So I just imagine there was a line forming already there at the party, like, okay, four times as much. So yeah, a bitter or easily offended, tight-fisted Christian is a contradiction in terms. Matthew got saved and there was joy. So the Pharisees see this, right? And they're calling it sinful frivolity, right? The houses were laid out like condos and they shared courtyards. And this is where they had a lot of their gatherings. And so uh, the Pharisees in your text can see what's going on, uh, but they won't come through into the fellowship because they're afraid of getting defiled by touching a sinner. 
And so they're hanging back and scowling. They're stalking Jesus. They're looking for a way to accuse him of doing something sinful or breaking the law. And so they hang back at safe distance. And so um, Matthew's happy. Jesus is happy. Uh, the disciples are happy. The angels are happy. Judas is happy. I mean, he's more interested in Matthew's money and what's in it for him because, you know, he was the treasurer, as the Bible tells us, and he used to steal from the money sack. Um, and so, yeah, so even he was happy. He was faking it, but he was happy, uh, except the religious guys. And the religious guys were stalking, as I've been saying. They make their move. And so I guess maybe when the party's over, uh, the disciples come out. They're in striking distance now. And so uh, they assault them verbally. And the word is not, they don't just ask, they murmur. Uh, Luke tells us they murmur. It's a spirit of complaint or accusation. How dare Jesus hang out with these sinners, you know, and, and they're, they're just accusing him of being like them in their immorality. You know, Jesus will say later in Matthew 11, he says, you know, heaven can't win with you guys. First John the Baptist came. He was kind of like uh, more disciplined. Uh, he was fasting and praying out in the wilderness. He didn't drink wine. He wasn't a party guy. He was a thunder, you know, sinners in the hand of an angry God kind of preacher, right? And, and you, you know what you said about him? That he's demon-possessed. And then the Son of God shows up, and Jesus' words are, he comes eating and drinking, and you say, you're a glutton and a drunk, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus is saying, look, <laughs> you know, we tried one approach, we tried another approach, and uh, you just don't get it. You know, so they look at him and say, you know, everywhere around you, there's uh, sinners, and you guys are always kind of having a good time. Uh, you, you know what you are? You're a friend to losers and sinners and low lives and those people who are down and out. You're their friend, you know? And Jesus, they meant it as an insult, and Jesus would say, thank you. I'm on target. I'm doing the Father's will. I'm a heart of compassion, and people who are broken and need God are not afraid to draw near to me. Because he say, he would say, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Come to me and find rest for your weary soul. And so verses 12 and 13, now as we finish up Jesus' response there, you can check that out and I will paraphrase for you. When they told the Lord what the Pharisees said, their snideful remark, Jesus said, well, healthy people don't need a doctor, right? It's sick people who uh, need a doctor. Uh, they need to learn, the Pharisees need to learn what Hosea 6 and 6 means. Showing mercy is more important than religious deeds, sacrifice. Here's the bottom line. I didn't, call to call, I didn't come to call good people, but sinners. Really, I didn't come to call people who think they're good because we already know there's no such thing as a good person. He came to call people who know that they're sinners. So, so now we finish up with Jesus' answer and response to the Pharisees' offense. And so the great shocker to the Pharisee and to many people out there is, is that there is no such thing as a good person. Comparatively speaking, some people are better than others morally, uh, but at the end of the day, everybody is stained with sin, and uh, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Uh, so really, though, Jesus' answer has a wider point to it. Sinners aren't to be avoided by God's people, they're not to be mocked or scorned or hated or looked down upon, but to be shown compassion and mercy to point them in the direction of life. And people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. 
kind of thing. And so he's looking for that in us. Luke chapter 19, verse 10 says, it says, the son of God came to seek and save the lost. And one writer said, on the same errand, he sends you and me. Because the spirit of Christ who came to seek and save the lost lives and dwells in us. He's still about his father's business and he uses us. And if we're turned off at the so-called sinners in this world, who's going to reach them? That's why he came. And that's what we struggle with. We should be hating the sin and loving the sinner, but it seems to be very hard for us to do. So let's not miss what he's saying here. He's saying, I only came for sinners. That's it. The only kind of humans he knows who he saves, who will be in heaven, are sinners. So if you don't come to heaven as a former sinner, one that admitted it, one who cried out and put only their hope in Christ, then you can't go to heaven. Take a look at this slide. It's got all of these scriptures that reinforce this truth. Hear about sin. And so who can say I've kept my heart pure, I am clean and without sin? Proverbs Chapter 20 and verse 9. Well, nobody can say that except the Pharisees. You know, I, I was talking to one guy and I said, you know, uh, well, you're a sinner. And he goes, well, no, uh, that's the human condition. I don't consider myself a sinner. So I said, well, have you ever lied? And he said, no. And I said, well, there's your first sin, your first lie, because everybody has told a lie. Um, Psalm 130, verse 3, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins... Who could stand? If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. First John chapter one, Romans three and verse 23, all of sin falls short of God's glory. Uh, Psalm 51 and verse five, for I was born a sinner. Yes, King David said, from the moment my mother conceived me, born a sinner. People have trouble with that because at first kids look really innocent and cute. But you give them two years, just give them two years and you will see the gene of sin manifest before your very eyes. Their first words aren't love and share. Their first words are me, myself, and I. The first sentence is who made you the boss of me? You're not the boss of me, right? And so, yeah, he says, it's sinners I came to save. But here's the cool thing. It's okay to be a sinner since Jesus came to save sinners, right? So look at what the angel told uh, Joseph at Christmas time. I have the slide for you. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because guess what? He will save his people from their sins. So if you're gonna be saved, you need some sins. The, things that the thing that qualifies you to be saved is your sins, not your good deeds, not the way you're basically a good person. Uh, he's come to save us from our sins. All this took place to fulfill what Isaiah said, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So God shows up to draw sinners to himself. He uh, draws near to them as well to save us. So it's really okay to admit that we're sinners. Now, what's so interesting, and we could go back to the verses as I just saw you did. Very good, Spence. Uh, what's so weird is, is that to comfort our hearts, to think we're okay and on track to heaven, we start thinking about all the good qualities we have and all the good things we've done instead of biblically and more with wisdom, would say what qualifies me to get to heaven is that I acknowledge my complete depravity, total, 100%. I am, spiritually speaking, a loser, and the only thing I bring to the table is brokenness and, and, and sinfulness. Instead of trying to think, and the world thinks that too, are you going to heaven? Well, I'm basically a good person when it has nothing to do with that. Jesus says, well, I'm looking for sinners. So let me know if you know of any, because those are the only kind of people I can save. So that's amazing for ourselves and how we view everybody else. So to answer their question, rather their accusation failed as a question. Verse 12 is a simple illustration. You gotta love it. And verse 13 is a strong rebuke, a verbal slap in the face. Let's look at uh, the simple illustration first. 
He says, follow my logic, fellas. You want to know why I hang out with sinners. Well, when a person needs healing because they're sick, they go to a doctor. When a person needs forgiveness because they're a sinner, they come to the Messiah. So that ought to tell you, you know, why wouldn't the Savior draw near to those who need saving? Isn't that how you would save somebody? If you're the savior, you need somebody to save. What a joke, Jesus is saying. I mean, did you hear the one about the guy who walks into the doctor's office? The doctor says, okay, what can I do for you? What's your problem? Oh, nothing. I'm feeling pretty fine. What? (laughs) Right? I mean, come on. Doctors draw near to the sick. Coaches draw near to athletes. Therapists draw near to their clients. Jesus draws near to those who need rescue. The church draws near to them as well because we are like our Lord, or so we're supposed to be. I invited a guy once to church, and this happens a lot, the same thing. Oh, you know, if I came to your church, the church building would catch on fire. So what I say lately is, number one, don't flatter yourself. Because Jesus has saved worse sinners than you, my friend. And number two, just so you know, the fire that your sins deserved (laughs) fell on Jesus already. So you can come to church with peace in your heart, knowing that your sins have been wiped out by the God who loves you so very much, even though you don't give him the time of day. The worst sinner on the planet is invited to come follow Jesus. And you know, when you follow somebody, you end up at the place they're at, right? Think about it. So if you follow Jesus, where are you going to end up? You're going to end up where Jesus is. And where is that? That's in the paradise of God. And he commands us, follow me out of this sinful world that's doomed and into life. It's okay to be sick with sin if you're under the care of the great physician. So uh, finally, the strong rebuke, he really is saying this, you guys are missing the whole point of your life as a, uh, as a religious leader, your whole point uh, of Judaism, the whole point of the Bible. Really, how devastating to find out at the end of your life and really for many, <laughs> way too late, that they miss the entire point of existence. Devastating to think. Busy, busy, busy. But miss the whole point of your existence. The purpose that God has for us. So the Pharisees and the holier than thou folks out there, they had some homework to do and Jesus assigned them a homework assignment. Verse 13, Jesus says, I want you to go. And learn something. Figure out what Hosea chapter 6 verse 6 means. And you'll have the answer to your silly question and your baseless uh, baseless accusation uh, of me. Hosea 6.6. God speaking first person through the prophet Hosea. When he says in a few words, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In Hosea's day, Israel had let serving God deteriorate into just going through the motions. Uh, Isaiah described it this way. Uh, Jesus, uh, God speaks through Isaiah saying, they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are way far away. In other words, they would go to the temple. They'd never meet with the Lord, but they would go through the prayers and the singing of the Psalms and the rituals and the giving Uh, But there was never any inner uh, encounter, no engagement of faith. Uh, It was all a shell. It was all uh, empty. And sadly, millions of churchgoers uh, will go through their whole life without ever connecting in a saving way uh, with the Lord. And and so Hosea 6.6 then really uh, to these men and to us is saying, God is saying, listen, religion and all its busyness and outward appearance of being spiritual without love and without mercy for sinners 
or other people is a waste of time and misses the whole point of the gospel and God's intervention in human history. Loving and serving God means treating people with mercy, and that makes all the other stuff we, the religious stuff we do, meaningful. So I desire mercy. He, he, he's never condoning sin or error in other people, but even when there's a call to correct in love, we do that with gentleness and humility, um, having compassion for broken and needy lives, having a soft heart to those who are in trouble, because of their own bad uh, behavior. That's what mercy is. You let them off the hook, even though, you know, you're treating them better than they deserve. That's mercy. And a lot of people have a hard time with that. And so uh, that's what loving God means. He says, really, the whole point of the gospel, love, mercy, compassion, and rescue. And here's what he's saying. If you're good at playing church but bad at showing mercy, go learn Hosea 6.6 6 so you don't waste any more of your life. I want to close out uh, this morning with a dramatic illustration that's given in John chapter 8, the famous or infamous story of the woman caught in adultery. Because what it does is kind of, it fleshes out for us what Hosea 6 and verse 6 means. So you know the story, most of you. The Pharisees were plotting to trap Jesus, so they had to come up with something to, to back him into a corner. So they got their friends busy, and they actually set up this terrible thing to happen with a woman in the act of adultery. The logistics go beyond twisted and perverse but um, they, they spy and they drag her into the temple courts while Jesus is teaching before a big crowd. And so they confront Jesus and they say, oh, teacher, fancy meeting you here. Well, we're just, uh, we've got this dilemma here. We've got this woman, she's an adulteress caught in her sin. Uh, the command of Moses is to stone her. Your thoughts on the matter and Jesus. Now, what is Jesus going to do? If he says, yes, stone her, he's been preaching a whole different gospel. He's been preaching about grace. He would be contradicting his own mission. Uh, the law of Moses, per the purpose of the law of Moses was to drive people in fear, uh, to love grace and to want Jesus and uh, uh, the Savior. And so they don't yet understand that the law came through Moses and grace and truth through Jesus Christ. And if he lets her off the hook, they'll just accuse him of disregarding the word of God through, that came through Moses. So what to do? Well, what will the one who lectured them on Hosea 6 and 6 do? I desire mercy, not religion. And so he stoops down and he writes on the ground with his finger, the same finger, really, that etched into stone the Ten Commandments, the same finger. He claims to be God. The same finger that told the sun, moon, and stars where to go. That finger. And he's writing in the sand. And it, and it says he does it on a couple occasions. He keeps doing it, right? And so what is he writing? Well, he says... Let the one without sin be the first to cast the first stone. Barclay says it's not the normal word for writing, that it's the word that can mean keeping a list of grievances against somebody. In other words, a record of their wrongs. So commentators say, Jesus is saying, go ahead if you don't have any sins. Be the first to cast a stone. But let me remind you, and personal secret sins, kind of writing out maybe a name, maybe a way that makes the person understand that Jesus knows exactly what that person is guilty of. And so it worked like a charm. And one by one, starting with the older ones who have more sins uh, that are obvious, 
um, uh, they leave and she's all alone with the Savior. And Jesus says, anyone left here to accuse you? And she says, no, Lord, Lord, no, Lord. Oh, profession of faith. Only one word, but that's the only word you need is Lord. And somewhere in all of that dragging, that poor humiliated soul and fear of being killed, she must have cried out to God in the process. And Jesus said, I don't condemn you. Go your way and leave your life of sin. So Jesus is telling her in her faith statement, you call me Lord, now I'm going to give you hope. You're not condemned. You can be free of this thing. You can start a new life and you can have hope. But that's what Hosea 6, 6 says. Mercy, to treat somebody mercifully. That's what uh, scores points with God. That's what God is all about. And why can't he just let her off the hook like that? Well, I'll tell you why. Because the only one that could have thrown a stone at her was the sinless son of God. So the only one who qualified without sin, who could throw the stone, didn't. Why? Because he will pay for her sins. He will be stoned to death from God, the father above. In fact, Isaiah chapter 53 says that it pleased the Lord God the Father to crush God the Son. So he was stoned. He was crushed for her sin so he could look into her eyes and bring the mercy instead of the law, treat her better than she deserved and said, you can have hope because I will take your punishment. And when we understand that he took our punishment, it softens our hearts. When we know that we were sinners and yet we have eternal life, we want to be merciful to others. We want to respond to the mercy shown us and be merciful to other people. So... Jesus calls us to follow him and respond in faith and leave everything and our old way of life and follow him. And a lot of people will be offended by a life where grace is extended along the way. We endure that. And finally, may we never trade a heart of compassion for a religion of rules. Let's pray together. Father God, we are thankful that you have graced our lives with the call of Christ, that you enabled us to have the faith that we need to leave our life of sin and to follow you. We thank you, Father God, for your incredible love. We pray that you would make us merciful, that we would not scorn the ones you came to save, but draw near to them in love and kindness, hating the sin and loving the sinner. Help us be more like you, Lord. People loved being around you. They loved to come to you. They felt accepted and hopeful because of your great mercy. Help us, Father God, not to be religious, but to be merciful and kind and loving. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.